1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's
0: plushcare.com slash weightloss. Tonight, I continue the story, The Blue Castle, by Lucy Maud Montgomery. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 8 Valancy did not sleep that night. She lay
1: awake all through the long, dark hours, thinking, thinking. She made a discovery that surprised her. She, who had been afraid of almost everything in life, was not afraid of death. It did not seem in the least terrible to her, and she need not now be afraid of anything else. Why had she been afraid of things? Because of life. Afraid of Uncle Benjamin because of the menace of poverty in old age. But now she would never be old, neglected, tolerated. Afraid of being an old maid all her life. But now she would not be an old maid very long. Afraid of offending her mother and her clan because she had to live with and among them. And couldn't live peaceably if she didn't give in to them. But now she hadn't. Valency felt a curious freedom. But she was still horribly afraid of one thing the fuss the whole jam free of them would make when she told them. Valency shuddered at the thought of it. She couldn't endure it. Oh, she knew so well how it would be. First, there would be indignation yes, indignation on the part of Uncle James because she had gone to a doctor, any doctor, without consulting him. Indignation on the part of her mother. For being so sly and deceitful. To your own mother, Doss. Indignation on the part of the whole clan because she had not gone to Dr. Marsh. Then would come the solicitude. She'd be taken to Dr. Marsh, and when Dr. Marsh confirmed Dr. Trent's diagnosis, she'd be taken to specialists in Toronto and Montreal. Uncle Benjamin would fit the bill with a splendid gesture of munificence, and thus assisting the widow and orphan and talk forever after the shocking fees specialists charged for looking wise and saying they couldn't do anything. And when the specialists could do nothing for her, Uncle James would insist on her taking purple pills. I've known them to effect a cure when all doctors had given up. And her mother would insist on Redfern's blood bitters, and Cousin Stickles would insist on rubbing over her heart every night with Redfern's liniment on the grounds that it might do good and couldn't do harm, and everybody else would have some pet dope for her to take. Dr. Stalling would come to her and say solemnly, You are very ill. Are you prepared for what may be before you? Almost as if he were going to shake his forefinger at her, the forefinger that had not grown any shorter or less knobbly with age. And she would be watched and checked like a baby, and never let to do anything or go anywhere alone. Cousin Stickles or her mother would insist on sharing her room and bed. Yes, undoubtedly they would. It was this last thought that really decided Valancy. She could not put up with it, and she wouldn't. As the clock in the hall below struck twelve, Valancy suddenly and definitely made up her mind that she would not tell anybody. She had always been told, ever since she could remember, that she must hide her feelings. It is not ladylike to have feelings. "'Cousin Stickles had once told her disapprovingly. "'Well, she would hide them with a vengeance. "'But though she was not afraid of death, "'she was not indifferent to it. "'She found that she resented it. "'It was not fair that she would have to die "'when she had never lived. "'Rebellion flamed up in her soul "'as the dark hours passed by. "'Not because she had no future, "'but because she had no past. "'I'm poor. "'I'm ugly. "'I'm a failure. And I'm near death, she thought. She could see her own obituary notice in the Darewood Weekly Times, copied into the Port Lawrence Journal. A deep gloom was cast over Darewood, etc., etc., leaves a large circle of friends to mourn, etc., etc. Lies, all lies. Gloom, forsooth. Nobody would miss her. Her death would not matter a straw to anybody. Not even her mother loved her. Her mother, Who'd been so disappointed that she was not a boy, or at least a pretty girl? Valency reviewed her whole life between midnight and the early spring dawn. It was a very drab existence, but here and there an incident loomed out with a significance out of all proportion to its real importance. These incidents were all unpleasant in one way or another. Nothing really pleasant had ever happened to Valency. I've never had. One wholly happy hour in my life. Not one, she thought. I've just been a colorless non-entity. I remember reading somewhere once that there is an hour in which a woman might be happy all her life if she could but find it. I've never found my hour. Never. And never will now.
0: If I could only have had that hour, I'd be willing to die.
1: Those significant incidents kept bobbing up in her mind like unbidden ghosts, without any sequence of time or place. For instance, that time when at sixteen, she had blued a tubful of clothes too deeply, and the time when at eight she had stolen some raspberry jam from Aunt Wellington's pantry. Valency never heard the last of these two misdemeanors. At almost every clan gathering, they were raked up against her as jokes. Uncle Benjamin hardly ever missed retelling the raspberry jam incident. He'd been the one to catch her, her face all stained and streaked. I've really done so few bad things that they have to keep harping on the old ones, thought Valancy. Why, I've never even had a quarrel with anyone. I haven't an enemy. What a spineless thing I must be not to have even one enemy. There was that incident of the dust pile at school when she was seven. Valancy always recalled it when Dr. Stalling referred to the text, To him that hath shall be given, and from him that hath not shall be taken, even that which he hath. Other people might puzzle over that text, but it never puzzled Valancy. The whole relationship between herself and Olive, dating from the day of the dust pile, was a commentary on it. She'd been going to school for a year, but Olive, who was a year younger, had just begun and had about her all the glamour of a new girl, and an exceedingly pretty girl at that. It was at recess, and all the girls, big and little, were out on the road in front of the school making dust piles. The aim of each girl was to have the biggest pile. Valency was good at making dust piles, there was an art in it, and she had secret hopes of leading. But Olive, working off by herself, was suddenly discovered to have a larger dust pile than anybody. Valancy felt no jealousy. Her dust pile was quite big enough to please her. Then one of the older girls had an inspiration. Let's put all our dust in Olive's pile and make a tremendous one, she exclaimed. A frenzy seemed to seize the girls. They swooped down on the dust piles with pails and shovels, and in a few seconds Olive's pile was a veritable pyramid. In vain, Valancy, with scrawny, outstretched little arms, tried to protect hers. She was ruthlessly swept aside, her dust pile scooped up and poured on olives. Valancy turned away resolutely and began building another dust pile. Again, a bigger girl pounced on it. Valancy stood before it, flushed, indignant, arms outspread.
0: Don't take it, she pleaded. Please don't take it. But
1: why, demanded the older girl. Why won't you help to build olives bigger? I want my own little dust pile, said Valancy piteously. Her plea went unheeded. While she argued with one girl, another scraped up her dust pile. Valancy turned away, her heart swelling, her eyes full of tears. Jealous. You're jealous, said the girls mockingly. You were very selfish, said her mother coldly, when Valancy told her about it at night. That was the first and last time Valancy had... Ever taken any of her troubles to her mother. Valency was neither jealous nor selfish. It was only that she wanted a dust pile of her own. Small or big mattered not. A team of horses came down the street. Olive's dust pile was scattered over the roadway. The bell rang. The girls trooped into school and had forgotten the whole affair before they reached their seats. Valency never forgot it. To this day she resented it in her secret soul but was it not symbolical of her life? I've never been able to have my own dust pile, thought Valancy. The enormous red moon she had seen rising right at the end of the street, one autumn evening of her sixth year. She'd been sick and cold with the awful, uncanny horror of it, so near to her, so big. She'd run in trembling to her mother, and her mother had laughed at her, She'd gone to bed and hidden her face under the clothes in terror, lest she might look at the window and see that horrible moon glaring in at her through it. The boy who tried to kiss her at a party when she was fifteen. She had not let him. She had evaded him and run. He was the only boy who had ever tried to kiss her. Now, fourteen years later, Valency found herself wishing that she had let him the time she'd been made to apologize to Olive for something she hadn't done. Olive had said that Valency had pushed her into the mud and spoiled her new shoes on purpose. Valency knew she hadn't. It had been an accident, and even that wasn't her fault. But nobody would believe her. She had to apologize and kiss Olive to make up. The injustice of it burned in her soul tonight. That summer, when Olive had the most beautiful hat, trimmed with creamy yellow net, with a wreath of red roses and little ribbon bows under the chin. Valency had wanted a hat like that more than she had ever wanted anything. She pleaded for one and had been laughed at. All summer she had to wear a horrid little brown sailor with elastic that cut behind her ears. None of the girls would go around with her because she was so shabby. Nobody but Olive. People had thought Olive so sweet and unselfish. I was an excellent foil for her, thought Valancy. Even then, she knew that Valancy had tried to win a prize for attendance in Sunday school once, but Olive won it. There were so many Sundays Valancy had to stay home because she had calls. She had once tried to say a piece in school one Friday afternoon, and had broken down in it. Olive was a good reciter and never got stuck. The night she would spent in Port Lawrence with Aunt Isabel when she was ten. Byron Sterling was there from Montreal. Twelve years old, conceited, clever. At family prayers in the morning, Byron had reached across and given Valancy's thin arm such a savage pinch that she screamed out with pain. After prayers were over, she was summoned to Aunt Isabel's bar of judgment. But when she said Byron had pinched her, Byron denied it. He said she cried out because a kitten scratched her. He said she had put the kitten up on her chair I was playing with it when she should have been listening to Uncle David's prayer. He was believed. In the Sterling clan, the boys were always believed before the girls. Valency was sent home in disgrace because of her exceeding bad behavior during family prayers, and she was not asked to Aunt Isabel's again for many moons. At the time, cousin Betty Sterling was married. Somehow Valency got wind of the fact that Betty was going to ask her to be one of her bridesmaids. Valancy was secretly uplifted. It would be a delightful thing to be a bridesmaid. And of course, she would have to have a new dress for it. A pretty new dress. A pink dress. Betty wanted her bridesmaids to dress in pink. But Betty had never asked her, after all. Valancy couldn't guess why, but long after her secret tears of disappointment had been dried, Olive told her. Betty, after much consultation and reflection, had decided that Valancy was too insignificant, she would spoil the effect. That was nine years ago, but tonight Valency caught her breath with old pain and sting of it. That day in her eleventh year, when her mother had badgered her into confessing something she had never done, Valency had denied it for a long time, but eventually, for peace's sake, she had given in and pleaded guilty. Mrs. Frederick was always making people lie by pushing them into situations where they had to lie. Then her mother had made her kneel down on the parlour floor between herself and cousin Stickles, and say, O oh God, please forgive me for not speaking the truth. Valancy had said it, but as she rose from her knees she muttered, But O oh God, you know I did speak the truth. Valancy had not then heard of Galileo, but her fate was similar to his. She was punished just as severely as if she hadn't confessed and prayed. The winter she went to dancing school. Uncle James had decreed she should go and had paid for her lessons. How she had looked forward to it, and how she had hated it. She had never had a voluntary partner. The teacher always had to tell some boy to dance with her, and generally he'd been sulky about it. Yet Valency was a good dancer, as light on her feet as Thistledown. Olive, who never lacked eager partners, was heavy. The affair of the button string when she was ten. All the girls in school had button strings. Olive had a very long one with a great many beautiful buttons. Valency had one. Most of the buttons on it were very commonplace, but she had six beauties that had come off Grandmother Sterling's wedding gown. Sparkling buttons of gold and glass, much more beautiful than any Olive had. Their possession conferred a certain distinction on Valancy. She knew every little girl in school envied her the exclusive possession of those beautiful buttons. When Olive saw them on the button string, she looked at them narrowly, but said nothing. Then, the next day, Aunt Wellington had come to Elm Street and told Mrs. Frederick that she thought Olive should have some of those buttons. Grandmother Sterling was just as much Wellington's mother as Frederick's. Mrs. Frederick had agreed amiably. She could not afford to fall out with Aunt Wellington. Moreover, the matter was of no importance whatever. Aunt Wellington carried off four of the buttons, generously leaving two for Valency. Valency had torn these from her string and flung them down on the floor. She had not yet learned that it was unladylike to have feelings, and had been sent supperless to bed for the exhibition. The night of Margaret Blunt's party... She had made such pathetic efforts to be pretty that night. Rob Walker was to be there, and two nights before, on the moonlit veranda of Uncle Herbert's cottage at Mistawis, Rob had really seemed attracted to her. At Margaret's party, Rob never even asked her to dance, did not notice her at all. She was a wallflower, as usual. That, of course, was years ago. People in Darewood had long since given up inviting Valancy to dances. but Valancy, its humiliation and disappointment were of the other day. Her face burned in the darkness as she recalled herself, sitting there with her pitifully crimped thin hair and the cheeks she had pinched for an hour before coming in an effort to make them red. All that came of it was a wild story that Valency Sterling was rouged at Margaret Blunt's party. In those days in Darewood, that was enough to wreck your character forever. It did not wreck Valency's, or even damage it. People knew she, couldn't be fast if she tried. They only laughed at her. I've had nothing but a second-hand existence, decided Valency. All the great emotions of life have passed me by. I've never even had grief. And have I ever really loved anybody? Do I really love Mother? No, I don't. That's the truth, whether it is disgraceful or not. I don't love her. I've never loved her. What's worse, I don't even like her. "'So I don't know anything about any kind of love. "'My life has been empty, empty. "'Nothing is worse than emptiness. "'Nothing.' "'Valancy ejaculated the last nothing aloud passionately. "'Then she moaned and stopped thinking about anything for a while. "'One of her attacks of pain had come on. "'When it was over, something had happened to Valancy, "'perhaps a culmination of the process that had been going on in her mind "'ever since she had read Dr. Trent's letter. "'It was three o'clock in the morning.' the wisest and most accursed hour of the clock. But sometimes it sets us free. I've been trying to please other people all my life, and failed, she said. After this, I shall please myself. I shall never pretend anything again. I've breathed an atmosphere of fibs and pretenses and evasions all my life. What a luxury it will be to tell the truth. I may not be able to do much that I want to do, but I won't do another thing that I don't want to do. Mother can pout for weeks. I shan't worry over it. Despair is a free man. Hope is a slave. Valancy got up and dressed with a deepening of that curious sense of freedom. When she had finished with her hair, she opened the window and hurled the jar of potpourri over into the next lot. It smashed gloriously against the schoolgirl complexion on the old carriage shop. I'm sick of fragrance of dead things,
0: said Valancy. Chapter
1: 9. Uncle Herbert and Aunt Alberta's silver wedding was delicately referred to among the Stirlings during the following weeks as, the time we first notice, poor Valancy was a little, you understand. Not for words would any of the Stirlings have said out and out at first, that Valancy had gone mildly insane, or even that her mind was slightly deranged. Uncle Benjamin was considered to have gone entirely too far when he had ejaculated, She's dippy, I tell you, she's dippy. I was only excused because of the outrageousness of Valancy's conduct at the aforesaid wedding dinner. But Mrs. Frederick and Cousin Stickles had noticed a few things that made them uneasy before the dinner. It had begun with the rosebush, of course, and Valancy never was really quite right again. She did not seem to worry in the least over the fact that her mother was not speaking to her. You would never suppose she noticed it at all. She had flatly refused to take either Purple Pills or Redfern's Bitters. She had announced coolly that she did not intend to answer to the name of Doss any longer. She had told Cousin Stickles that she wished she would give up wearing that brooch with Cousin Artemis Stickles' hair in it. She had moved her bed in her room to the opposite corner. She had read Magic of Wings Sunday afternoon. When Cousin Stickles had rebuked her, Valancy had said indifferently, Oh, I forgot it was Sunday. And had gone on reading it. Cousin Stickles had seen a terrible thing. She had caught Valency sliding down the banister. Cousin Stickles did not tell Mrs. Frederick this. Poor Amelia was worried enough as it was. But it was Valency's announcement on Saturday night that she was not going to the Anglican church anymore that broke through Mrs. Frederick's stony silence. Not going to church anymore? Doss, have you absolutely taken leave? Oh, I'm going to church, said Valancy airily. I'm going to the Presbyterian church. But to the Anglican church, I will not go. This was even worse. Mrs. Frederick had recourse to tears, having found outraged majesty had ceased to be effective. What have you got against the Anglican church? She sobbed. Nothing. Only just that you've always made me go there. If you'd made me go to the Presbyterian church, I'd want to go to the Anglican. Is that a nice thing to say to your mother? Oh, how true it is that it is sharper than a serpent's tooth to have a thankless child. Is that a nice thing to say to your daughter? said unrepentant Valency. So Valency's behavior at the silver wedding was not quite the surprise to Mrs. Frederick and Christine Stickles that it was to the rest. They were doubtful about the wisdom of taking her, but concluded it would make talk if they didn't. Perhaps she would behave herself, and so far no outsider suspected there was anything strange about her. By a special mercy of Providence, it had poured torrents Sunday morning, so Valancy had not carried out her hideous threat of going to the Presbyterian church. Valancy would not have cared in the least if they had left her at home. These family celebrations were all hopelessly dull, but the Stirlings always celebrated everything. It was a long-established custom. Even Mrs. Frederick gave a dinner party on her wedding anniversary, and Cousin Stickles had friends in to supper on her birthday. Valancy hated these entertainments, because they had to pinch and save and contrive for weeks afterwards to pay for them. But she wanted to go to the silver wedding. It would hurt Uncle Herbert's feelings if she stayed away, and she rather liked Uncle Herbert. Besides, she wanted to look over all her relatives from her new angle. It would be an excellent place to make public her declaration of independence if occasion occurred. Put on your brown silk dress, said Mrs. Sterling, as if there was anything else to put on. Valancy had only the one festive dress that snuffy brown silk Aunt Isabel had given her. Aunt Isabel had decreed that Valancy should never wear colours. It did not become her. When she was young, they allowed her to wear white, but that had been tacitly dropped for some years. Valancy put on the brown silk. It had high collar and long sleeves, She had never had a dress with a low neck and elbow sleeves, although they had been worn, even in Derwood, for over a year. But she did not do her hair pompadour. She knotted it on her neck and pulled it out over her ears. She thought it became her, only the little knot was so absurdly small. Mrs. Frederick resented the hair, but decided it was wisest to say nothing on the eve of the party. It was so important that Valancy should be kept in good humour, if possible until it was over. Mrs. Frederick did not reflect that this was the first time in her life that she had thought it necessary to consider Valancy's humours, but then Valancy had never been strange before. On their way to Uncle Herbert's, Mrs. Frederick and Cousin Stickles walking in front, Valancy trotting meekly along behind, Ring Abel drove past them. Drunk as usual, but not in the roaring stage, just drunk enough to be excessively polite. He raised his disreputable old tartan cap with the air of a monarch saluting his subjects and swept them a grand bow. Mrs. Frederick and Cousin Stickles dared not cut Roaring Abel altogether. He was the only person in Darewood who could be got to do odd jobs of carpentering and repairing when they needed to be done, so it would not do to offend him. But they responded with only the stiffest, slightest of bows. Roaring Abel must be kept in his place. Valancy behind them. Did a thing they were fortunately spared seeing. She smiled gaily and waved her hand to roaring Abel. Why not? She had always liked the old sinner. He was such a jolly, picturesque, unashamed reprobate, and stood out against the drab respectability of Darewood and its customs like a flame red flag of revolt and protest. Only a few nights ago, Abel had gone through Darewood in the sma's, shouting oaths at the top of his stentorian voice, which could be heard for miles and lashing his horse in a furious gallop as he tore along prim, proper Elm Street. Yelling and blaspheming like a fiend, shuddered Cousin Stickles at the breakfast table. I cannot understand why the judgment of the Lord has not fallen upon that man, long ere this, said Mrs. Frederick petulantly, as if she thought Providence was very dilatory, not to have a gentle reminder. He'll be picked up dead some morning. He'll fall under his horse's hoofs and be trampled to death, said Cousin Stickles reassuringly. Valancy had said nothing, of course, but she wondered to herself if Roaring Abel's periodical sprees were not his futile protest against the poverty and drudgery and monotony of his existence. She went on dream sprees in her blue castle. Roaring Abel, having no imagination, could not do that. His escapes from reality had to be concrete. So she waved at him today with a sudden fellow feeling, and Roaring Abel, not too drunk to be astonished, nearly fell off his seat in his amazement. By this time, they'd reached Maple Avenue and Uncle Herbert's house, a large, pretentious structure, peppered with meaningless bay windows and excrescent porches, a house that always looked like a stupid, prosperous, self-satisfied man with warts on his face. A house like that, said Valancy solemnly, is a blasphemy. Mrs. Frederick was shaken to her soul. What had Valancy said? Was it profane? Or only just strange. Mrs. Frederick took off her hat in Aunt Alberta's spare room with trembling hands. She made one more feeble attempt to avert disaster. She held Valancy back on the landing as Cousin Stickles went downstairs. Won't you try to remember your lady, she pleaded. Oh, if there were only any hope of being able to forget it, said Valancy wearily. Mrs. Frederick felt that she had not deserved this from Providence. Chapter 10. Bless this food to our use and consecrate our lives to thy service, said Uncle Herbert briskly. Aunt Wellington frowned. She always considered Herbert's graces entirely too short and flippant. A grace, to be a grace in Aunt Wellington's eyes, had to be at least three minutes long and uttered in an unearthly tone between a groan and a chant. As a protest, she kept her head bent a perceptible time after all the rest had been lifted. When she permitted herself to sit upright, she found Valency looking at her. Ever afterwards, Aunt Wellington averred that she had known from that moment that there was something wrong with Valency, in those strange eyes of hers. We should always have known she was not entirely right with eyes like that. There was an odd gleam of mockery and amusement, as if Valency were laughing at her. Such a thing was unthinkable, of course. Aunt Wellington at once ceased to think it. Valency was enjoying herself. She had never enjoyed herself at a family reunion before. In social functions, as in childish games, she had only filled in. Her clan had always considered her very dull. She had no parlor tricks, and she had been in the habit of taking refuge from the boredom of family parties in her blue castle, which resulted in an absent mindedness that increased her reputation for dullness of vacuity. She has no social presence whatever, Aunt Wellington had decreed once and for all. Nobody dreamed that Valancy was dumb in their presence merely because she was afraid of them. Now she was no longer afraid of them. The shackles had been stricken off her soul. She was quite prepared to talk if occasion offered. Meanwhile, she was giving herself such freedom of thought as she had never dared to take before. She let herself go with a wild inner exultation as Uncle Herbert carved the turkey. Uncle Herbert gave Valency a second look that day. Being a man, he didn't know what she had done to her hair, but he thought surprisingly that Doss was not such a bad-looking girl after all, and he put an extra piece of white meat on her plate. What herb is most injurious to a young lady's beauty, propounded Uncle Benjamin by way of starting conversation. Loosening things up a bit, as he would have said. Valency, whose duty it was to say, What?, did not say it. Nobody else said it, so Uncle Benjamin, after an expectant pause, had to answer, Time, and felt that his riddle had fallen flat. He looked resentfully at Valency, who had never failed him before, but Valency did not seem to even be aware of him. She was gazing around the table, examining relentlessly everyone in this depressing assembly of sensible people, and watching the little squirms with a detached, amused smile. So these were the people she had always held in reverence and fear. She seemed to see them with new eyes. Big, capable, patronizing, voluble Aunt Mildred, who thought herself the cleverest woman in the clan, her husband a little lower than the angels, and her children wonders. Had not her son, Howard, Been all through teething at eleven months? And could she not tell you the best way to do everything, from cooking mushrooms to picking up a snake? What a bore she was. What ugly moles she had on her face. Cousin Gladys, who was always praising her son who had died young, and always fighting with her living one, she had neuritis, or what she called neuritis. It jumped about from one part of her body to another. It was a convenient thing. If anybody wanted her to go somewhere she didn't want to go, she had neuritis in her legs. And always, if any mental effort was required, she could have neuritis in her head. You can't think with neuritis in your head, my dear. What an old humbug you are, thought Valency, impiously. Aunt Isabel. Valency counted her chins. Aunt Isabel was a critic of the clan. She'd always gone about squashing people flat. More members of it than Valancy were afraid of her. She had, it was conceded, a biting tongue. I wonder what would happen to your face if you ever smiled, speculated Valancy, unblushingly. Second cousin Sarah Taylor, with her great, pale, expressionless eyes, who was noted for the variety of her pickle recipes and for nothing else. So afraid of saying something indiscreet that she never said anything worth listening to. So proper that she blushed when she saw the advertisement picture of her corset, and had put a dress on her Venus de Milo statuette, which made it look real tasty. Little cousin Georgiana, not such a bad little
0: soul, but dreary, very.
1: Always looking as if she had just been starched and ironed. Always afraid to let herself go. The only thing she really enjoyed was a funeral. You knew where you were with a corpse. Nothing more could happen to it, but while there was life, there was fear. Uncle James, handsome, dark, with his sarcastic trap-like mouth and iron-gray sideburns, whose favourite amusement was to write controversial letters to the Christian times, attacking modernism. Valency always wondered if he looked as solemn when he was asleep as he did when awake. No wonder his wife had died young. Valency remembered her, a pretty, sensitive thing. Uncle James had denied her everything she wanted and showered on her everything she didn't want. He'd killed her, quite legally. She'd been smothered and starved. Uncle Benjamin, wheezy, cotton-mouthed, with great pouches under eyes that held nothing in reverence. Uncle Wellington, long, pallid face, thin, pale yellow hair, one of the fair Stirlings, thin, stooping body, abominably high forehead with such ugly wrinkles, and eyes about as intelligent as a fish's, thought Valancy. Looks like a cartoon of himself. Aunt Wellington, named Mary but called by her husband's name to distinguish herself from Great Aunt Mary. A massive, dignified, permanent lady, splendidly arranged, iron-grey hair, rich, fashionable, beaded dress, had her moles removed by electrolysis, which Aunt Mildred thought was a wicked evasion of the purposes of God. Uncle Herbert, with his spiky grey hair. Aunt Alberta, who twisted her mouth so unpleasantly in talking, and had a great reputation for unselfishness because she was always giving up a lot of things she didn't want. Valency let them off easily in her judgement because she liked them, even if they were in Milton's expressive phrase, stupidly good. But she wondered for what inscrutable reason Aunt Alberta had seen fit to tie a black velvet ribbon around each of her chubby arms above the elbow. Then she looked across the table at Olive. Olive, who had been held up to her as a paragon of beauty, behavior, and success as long as she could remember. Why can't you hold yourself like Olive, Doss? Why can't you stand correctly like Olive, Doss? Why can't you speak prettily like Olive, Doss? Why can't you make an effort, Doss? Valancy's elfin eyes lost their mocking glitter and became pensive and sorrowful. You could not ignore or disdain Olive. It was quite impossible to deny that she was beautiful and effective, and sometimes she was a little intelligent. Her mouth might be a trifle heavy. She might show her fine, white, regular teeth rather too lavishly when she smiled. When all was said and done, Olive justified Uncle Benjamin's summing up. A stunning girl. Yes, Bouncy agreed in her heart. Olive was stunning. Rich golden brown hair, elaborately dressed with a sparkling bandeau holding its glossy puffs in place. Large, brilliant blue eyes and thick silken lashes. Face of rose and bare neck of snow, rising above her gown. Great pearl bubbles in her ears. The blue-white diamond flame on her long, smooth waxen finger with its rosy-pointed nail. Arms of marble gleaming through green chiffon and shadow lace. Valancy felt suddenly thankful that her own scrawny arms were decently swathed in brown silk. Then she resumed her tabulation of Olive's charms tall, queenly, confident. Everything that Valancy was not. Dimples too in cheeks and chin. A woman with dimples always gets her own way, thought Valancy, in a recurring spasm of bitterness at the fate which had denied her even one dimple. Olive was only a year younger than Valancy, though a stranger would have thought that there was at least ten years between them. But nobody ever dreaded old maidenhood for her. Olive had been surrounded by a crowd of eager beaux since her early teens, just as her mirror was always surrounded by a fringe of cards, photographs, programs, and invitations. At 18, when she had graduated from Harrigal College, Olive had been engaged to Will Desmond, lawyer in embryo. Will Desmond had died, and Olive had mourned him properly for two years. When she was 23, she had a hectic affair with Donald Jackson but Aunt and Uncle Wellington disapproved of that, and in the end, Olive dutifully gave him up. Nobody in the Sterling clan, whatever outsiders might say, hinted that she did so because Donald himself was cooling off. However that might be, Olive's third venture met with everybody's approval. Cecil Price was clever and handsome, and one of the Port Lawrence Prices. Olive had been engaged to him for three years. He had just graduated in civil engineering, and they were to be married as soon as he landed a contract. Olive's hope chest was full to overflowing with exquisite things, and Olive had already confided to Valency what her wedding dress was to be. Ivory silk draped with lace, white satin court train, lined with pale green Georgette, heirloom veil of Brussels lace. Valency knew also, though Olive had not told her, that the bridesmaids were selected and that she was not among them. Valancy had, after a fashion, always been Olive's confidante, perhaps because she was the only girl in the connection who could not bore Olive with return confidences. Olive always told Valancy all the details of her love affairs, from the days when the little boys in school used to persecute her with love letters. Valancy could not comfort herself by thinking these affairs mythical. Olive really had them. Many men had gone mad over her besides the three fortunate ones. I don't know what the poor idiots see in me that drives them to make such double idiots of themselves, Olive was wont to say. Valency would have liked to say, I don't either. But truth and diplomacy both restrained her. She did know perfectly well. Olive Sterling was one of the girls about whom men do go mad, just as indubitably as she, Valency was one of the girls at whom no man ever looked twice. And yet, thought Valency summing her up, with a new and merciless conclusiveness. She's like a jeweless morning. There's something lacking.
0: Good night.